Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Sam Dennigan from Strong Roots, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Now, I'm sure you've been asked this question a bunch of times, um, and you know, I would love to just skip past it, but I don't think I can because I got to be fair to my audience who may not have heard the Strong Roots story or don't know enough about your background. I'd love to go back to when the idea for Strong Roots came about and, and what inspired you to even uh, get started with this company. Sure, sure. We, we never presume that everybody knows us. Otherwise, <laughs> we, we wouldn't have a lot of work to do. So, um, Strong Roots was born out of a uh, the first part of my career, which was in the food business. Um, and I say career, but I grew up in the food industry. Um, my family was in food. Um, it's a third or fourth generational business now. So I grew up in delivery trucks and packing fresh produce like fruits, vegetables and potatoes and spending uh, weekends with my dad in a warehouse where um, there was lots of different characters and farmers and producers and stuff all kind of collaborating, which was a a potato merchant business at that stage, which grew into a pretty big um, uh, consolidator of fresh food is I think what, what, what you would call it. If you, if, if your listeners are, you know, mostly us based, it's probably, UNFI is probably the most similar to the kind of business that I grew up in. And um, I was there for 10 years, obviously had experience of it before, but my career in in uh, what what's named after my grandfather, Sam Dennigan and company, I uh, was there for 10 years as a employee. And while I was there, I worked in every part of the business from, um, you know, management, operations. I was the IT guy for a while. I worked in sales and marketing. I was in procurement going to various different places around the world to buy produce in out of season um, to import back to Ireland. Um, all of this uh, was, was Irish based, which is where I'm originally from. And when you're on an island like Ireland, you know, a lot of things can be seasonal and sustainable but a lot of things can't so spent a lot of time with growers in different countries understanding how they do things differently and how they do things better and trying to build a supply chain that could sustain a small country with small volumes which were very changeable um 
So while I was working there, I worked with various different private brands for retailers. Um, and primarily, I found my sweet spot of, of skill in developing new products for those retailers um, from an idea or concept or a trend that we were seeing in the food service market with chefs, particularly celebrity chefs, you know, every time uh, there would be a cooking show on TV or a some sort of a program that used a unique vegetable the next day the whole country wanted you know this exotic fruit or vegetable to put in their recipe so you know our job was to find it commercialize it and make it available for the masses and you know so i've been doing this for a long time without the formalization of it around a brand um i think the the kind of the exciting uh light bulb moment for me was when I was I had licensed the Green Giant brand. If you remember the sweet corn and the peas and yep. it exists in multiple categories like frozen and canned goods and stuff. And my family's business had licensed that for the Irish market and I was in charge of commercializing it and figuring out what we could sell, what was unique, you know, how would we break the monopoly of uh, in Ireland, fresh produce is primarily private label. And we felt that a brand could bring this added value, this story, this understanding of why paying more for fresh produce got you better ingredients, etc. cetera. Um, and also linking it back to the farms where it came from and who produced it and how they produced it and why was, why was that better. And ultimately, what I learned from that was a huge amount of both how to do things, but also how not to do things. And that project failed because, um, you know, growers and, and producers, specifically in Ireland, but I've, I've found this across the world, you know, are very, very, you know, uh, as attached to the, the, the demands that the retailers place on them, whether that's price or availability or exclusivity or whatever. So, you know, the growers that I've been working with, once we had created these beautiful varieties of uh, vegetables that were both grown in Ireland and away, you know, couldn't refuse the retailers when they came and just looked for them in private label versus brand. And then I think the other reason why that failed was because um, we hadn't really understood the price sensitivity in the market for fresh produce. Um and hadn't done enough research on ultimately what the consumer wanted versus what we wanted to give them. And those were two valuable lessons in what came next, which was strong roots. So having had a huge experience in every part of the food industry from the agronomy of growing things and seasonality all the way through to how to commercialize things on shelf. Um, while we were doing that project for Green Giant, I had done this huge amount of research against brands in general that operated with fruits and vegetables in, in the retail space. And because there was so few in Ireland, we had to use the frozen category to see how consumers bought private label versus branded products in the same store for different pricing sensitivities and different ranges and for different purposes of premiumization, et cetera. And, what I realized was that in fresh, because of that celebrity chef culture and empowerment of people cooking at home and scratch cooking, et cetera, especially after 2008 during the recession, when people were really focused on making their own stuff, 
I realized that Frozen was one of these categories that hadn't been innovated for for decades. Um, packaging changes, you know, down weights, up weights, depending on the on the timing, but no real difference. You know, it was peas, it was carrots, it was florets of broccoli, it was mixed vegetables, it was ice cream, it was pizza, etc. And um, when I started looking at this frozen category, it just it hadn't made. It, it hadn't made any progress, but it also didn't differ that much from fresh, hmm. which is what I had grown up in. So the more I looked at it, the more I realized that, you know, this is ripe for disruption, even with the simplest of products. And while I had been buying a lot of raw material for who, who's now one of my partners in McCain Foods for a project that we were doing with them in the UK, I realized that um, while the food service sector had found a way to commercialize sweet potato fries, which was our first product and our only SKU for nearly two years, um, no one had done it successfully in retail. And when I dug in to try and understand why that was the case, I realized it was a massive opportunity at volume for a consumer that really wanted it. So it was it was a kind of a rather than a light bulb moment, it was a, a period of ten years in an industry understanding everything at at its core, which actually led me to what people call a gap in the market. Well, it's only a gap in the market if you see it and you can do something about it. And um, that's when Strong Roots was born. Um, knowledge and you know, uh, understanding of the industry at a level where you could do something about it. And shortly after, you know, launching that as, you know, I'm always very honest about this, you know, it was a timed opportunity to sell one product. I was never, you know, part of the vegan plant-based movement. I was never an advocate for veganism. I was an agriculture guy who knew about business and consolidation but in that journey, very quickly, we realized that there was this revolution going on that was kind of under the surface at the time, but it was definitely something that we could partake in. And that really drove what came next for us. So I think it was a huge amount of timing, luck, and um, you know, execution knowledge that got us going. It was what we did with it after that that kind of got us to the point where we are now and and understanding that this was bigger than an Irish thing and, you know, taking action on how we could become a global brand in a relatively short space of time by having seen that earlier than a lot of uh, big companies. Mm -hmm. So there's so much there that I, I could pick up on. One of the things that did stand out, though, is you, you said that you had only one SKU for the first two years mm -hmm. and that was the sweet potato fries in yep. retail and i and i also read this in in prep for this for this conversation today that your company was the first to introduce a frozen sweet potato fry product in retail in ireland is that correct because that surprised me when i read that <laughs> given it that's was only true, a few years true. ago and i would have assumed that that this was normal and ubiquitous i can tell you that i can tell you that 10 years ago sweet potatoes first were sold as a raw ingredient in the fresh produce market in Ireland. And over a three to five year, year period, they went from being 
0% of the total potato sales in Ireland to about 13%. And so we didn't see the trend, you know, when it was too late, we could see it emerging because we were procuring the raw ingredients for the various different industrial and retail channels. So yeah, Ireland, Ireland went from being a uh, nearly non-existent consumer of sweet potato to being, um, you know, one of the most per capita in Europe in like a five-year period. Um, so yeah, I mean, we the reason that we we were a, a, a one skew horse for so long was because people we couldn't supply enough sweet potato fries. You know, we were trying to, we were trying to grow so fast and, um, you know, it still makes up, uh, the biggest part of, um, of our sales across the business. It's our, it's our number one seller. And so interesting that your first idea and your first product, obviously you hit it out of the park with the first product, uh, by identifying the gap. Um, it, kind of was uh, sounds like almost like an organic evolution of all that you'd been seeing and hearing and understanding about the fresh produce spaces and, and then eventually about frozen were you also sourcing the sweet potatoes from ireland how was what was the supply chain looking like and and before we get into how did you expand beyond that i'd, I'd love to dive really into the the early days of um yeah, trying sure. to create a brand around it because that is a big part of your story too like you were not doing that yeah. prior to strong roots no it, it it wasn't a private label product that made us famous it was the brand it was the packaging it was how it looked it was how it made people f- feel it was its association to how premium it was matched off with the price point that we had to achieve for it um and it was also a major shift in people's perception of how much they were willing to pay for a product in the frozen aisle versus where they had been before. You know, most retailers laughed us out of the room when we went to the product with them first, even though we had the data and the insights and the experience, et cetera. You know, um, I think retailers are most, much more kind of uh, open-eared now than they used to be. But, um, you know, back then it was very much a, we know best and you know usually you don't get the chance if they don't think it's going to work but thankfully through good relationships there was a trust there and they made the right bets in the end mm-hmm. um no we chose the most complicated supply chain from the very start <laughs> and that was the usp actually so believe it or not up until about um 10 years ago sweet potatoes weren't grown in central europe um small like private holdings possibly people's gardens and stuff like that but not on a uh, commercial basis for for supply of the market um north carolina is the home of sweet potatoes um in the northern hemisphere um with accepting uh china and we had been um, exporting quite a lot of raw material for the retail market of whole pre- fresh produce from North Carolina for a couple of years before I started Strong Roots, um, which meant that we understood how to do it fresh, which is usually more complicated than frozen. Um, but I couldn't understand how um, the people who were doing sweet potato fries to say the food service market to service like TGI Fridays and some of the American chains that had started them um, 
in the Irish market, why they weren't doing it, you know, in, in bigger capacity. So when I drilled into it, it was to do with the quality of the product after shipping, if it was shipped fresh. There's lots of dehydration that happens. Um, basically, if you ship a, a, a thousand kilos, you would get uh, 850 kilos, which caused havoc with how much you had to pay for the product and had to have a very understanding relationship with your grower supplier partner versus the receiver. Um, and, you know, having done a lot of shipping and troubleshooting for different products that are affected by those type of conditions during shipping, you know, I, I just realized that the easiest way to do this would be to freeze it um, because you were getting what you were shipping uh, on the other end. Um, normally, big companies don't do that because the freight and the costs um, and everything associated with shipping finished products doesn't work in a bigger P&L with more overheads and costs, etc. But as a startup company with an employee and staff of one, that's not the same. So um, we, we, we got really close with a grower in North Carolina who we actually still work with and still ship products around the world called uh, Trinity Frozen Foods. And at that time, it was owned and run by a guy called George Wooten, who was one of the biggest sweet potato growers in, uh, in the U.S. And he, believe it or not, he was trying to find an outlet for his waste material sweet potatoes that were either too big or too small to go to the retail market because everyone wants the perfect-looking, non-ugly fruit or vegetable. Mm-hmm. So he was trying to create ad- added value from his waste and we saw a massive opportunity to turn his waste into a premium retail product. So since the beginning, we've been shipping containers from North Carolina over to Ireland and and to the UK and some other countries um, from day one, um, because that was actually the unique selling proposition of both quality and taste and, um, uh, you know, heritage that we wanted to sell and that we wanted to sell uh, to, to tell the story about. Um, our supply chain is a little bit different now because we're so focused on our on our footprint. But um, yeah, we, we started very complicated and now we're trying to oversimplify it actually. Yeah, oh, that's, that's such a... I would have never guessed that was what was happening. But it also, again, explains that it almost sounds like maybe I'm like I'm I'm, I'm uh, drawing conclusions here, but it seems like while you were working with your family business, you were almost always looking out for the next opportunity or looking at where uh, there was a chance to launch a brand. And it sounds like a lot of these these um, potential partnerships that eventually emerged came out of those discussions and relationships and identifying new possibilities on where to take your new brand. Um, but of course, you know, of course, you've you experienced fairly quick success in Ireland and expanded to the UK, given that you are and, and I'm not very familiar with the frozen category in the European market in general. But um, so I'm sure you can tell me a lot more, but I'd love to understand, given the type of skews that you had when you were launching, say, or expanding into the UK, uh, where were you positioning yourself versus what existed in the market? Uh, and of course, then we'll get to what happened when you try to do that now in the U.S. as well, because the U.S. definitely sure. has a very robust uh, competitive yeah. marketplace when it comes to products like this. Um, but tell us about the first step outside of Ireland with some new SKUs. Um, what was your thinking? Yeah. What was the research you did? 
Yeah, so um, unfortunately for us, uh, sweet potato fries and retail was already a commodity in the UK by the time we were ready to go there in, in year two. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, one of the um, biggest French fry companies in the world, the biggest French fry company in the world in, in McCain, um, had already figured out what I had figured out over the same timeline. Hadn't got to Ireland, thankfully, but um, ultimately had launched um, into the UK markets. And then a couple of Dutch and Belgian suppliers had also figured out um, how to do it efficiently for the private label market. So when you're a challenger brand speaking to big retailers about commodities, usually the quality um quality over quantity conversation isn't the one you can have that early um so the fact that our product was better and was cleaner and was um you know procured from an area that literally grew the breast produce you know their consumers focused so much on price for commodities that that wasn't a unique selling proposition for them Mm -hmm. and we realized that if we were going to break into the uk market we were actually going to have to design a completely new not just single skew but the range of products that made sense for the same trend that we had hit on in ireland but for a completely different consumer in a completely different market which is much more competitive you know what you've got in the uk which you don't have in ireland or didn't at the time is that you have you know two two sets of suppliers for frozen retail one is the big cpg companies so um, big French fry companies, big vegetable companies like Nomad and Birdseye. And then you've got a second tier in the UK, which is challenger frozen brands who are all trying to find the same insights and gaps that you're trying to find. But they're funded and sophisticated and they're not as start up as you. So we had to find another in, you know, and you're right in what you say about, you know, the background and history was to, to find those trends and find those innovations. So for me, this was a creative challenge. This is what mm-hmm. got me out of bed in the morning. You know, this was the exciting part about why I had got into business myself. So um, that's what we did. We 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 went to Waitrose and we presented. We we set up to present about thirty five different products to Waitrose. And I remember the buyer came into the room and he's like, "I'm not looking at any of that over there. I want to t- try that one and that one." And that was it. He just picked. A random two out of the whole group. Um, and those two were um, our Kale and Quinoa Burger, um, which subsequently won a, a Nexty Award um, at, at Expo West in, mm-hmm. in 2019. And um, our mixed root vegetable fries, which was something that um, the market hadn't seen, they hadn't seen. And Waitrose are known as innovation acceptors as opposed to innovation followers. Um, they take risks. They can see things a little bit further. They've got a different demographic of consumer who's willing to pay more, etc. So we chose them to start there because of that, as well as um, I suppose you know putting one foot in the market without jumping in too deep mm-hmm. and not being able to service you know a big customer like Tesco or Sainsbury's, ASDA, for example. Um, so. Our second range of products, I mean, we developed the Cane and Quinoa Burger on the basis that in the market, there was no great tasting veggie burgers whatsoever. There was 
uh, extruded and processed patties. There were breaded vegetables in a ball. There was various different things, but they all tasted like crap. They were they were terrible. They were either too bland or covered in, you know, unhealthy breadcrumbs or whatever. So we set ourselves the task of trying to make a healthy, tasty veggie burger. And amazingly, that's all we did. And that's what bought us kudos to enter the UK market. We, we launched it with three other products, which were spinach bites, which are another household mm-hmm. favorite in the UK and the US now. Um, our mixed with vegetable fries, which was carrots, beets and parsnips cut into French fries and um, using our, our, our tempura batter, which makes them really crispy. And um, our, our coated beetroot wedges, which I think was one of our best products ever, but because not enough people love beets in the world, didn't uh, survive too long <laughs> with uh, the high volume velocities that are needed in the market. But that kind of launched us into the UK market, completely different to what happened in Ireland, but following the train, same trend and insights. Let's bring color and innovation to a beige and tired category. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, three of those products still exist today, um, which is a, is a pretty good hit rate. And um, that brought us to every major retailer in the, in the first year in the UK, um, bar one or two who, who we're now trading with. Um, and subsequently, our relationship as a result of those products brought sweet potato fries into the market as well. And only recently, um, I was to learn that uh, despite all the commoditization of sweet potato fries over the, the years that we established, um, we're now um, just above the next uh, branded player as the number one sweet potato fry in the UK market. So, you know, similarly to the US, what you launch with doesn't need to be your, you know, your key skews uh, in the long term. It's fascinating because while all of this is happening and you're starting to expand in the UK and, and of course, we're going to get into the US next, um, at the same time, in not exactly the same space, but if you want to call the plant-based industry a space or a cat- it's not really a category. It involves multiple uh, sections of the grocery store and, and retail. Uh, we were witnessing this this rapid rise of um, the new wave of meat alternatives and cheese and dairy alternatives and this really fast-growing industry called the plant-based food industry. Except mm-hmm. in that industry, at least from the looks of it in the last few years, all the attention was on burgers and chicken nuggets and uh, one-to-one meat replacements. Um, and increasingly, it seems like some of your SKUs, while some of your SKUs were, could be considered sides um, or snacks, um, you started to dabble in the burger space, but more from a veggie burger standpoint, which at least in the U.S., has been around for a while, good or bad. I know everyone has different opinions on veggie burgers, and also there is a large spectrum of them from the uh, the dry bean burger that, that falls apart to the mushy paste of a veggie burger that uh, yep. no one really wants to eat, right? And, and so veggie burgers were sort of like um, 
especially all the new plant-based meat companies were positioning themselves saying, we are not veggie burgers, right? We are, we're meat just made from plants. And while that's happening, you're building this separate company on the, maybe this is not the best way to categorize it, but on the backs of real vegetables, right? There's, there's no denying that your products are vegetables and you're not even hiding the fact. In fact, um, that is the yeah. whole point of your products. So I guess I'm saying all this to really um, pick your brain on what were you thinking at that point in time while you see uh, these massive startups um, with skyrocketing valuations uh, around the same time while you're building this uh, veggie-forward plant-based food company, um, did the thought ever cross your mind? Maybe that's an area you should start dabbling in. Maybe what consumers want is really meaty burgers and not really vegetables. Um, I kind of know where you went with that decision eventually. We all know that now. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure that must have been tempting given the amount of money flying around in the year 2017, 18, and some would argue until last year. Um, yeah. Yeah, what was your thinking behind that? And and maybe it was a simple decision because you knew your lane and you knew what you were good at. But I'm curious from yeah. an entrepreneur standpoint, uh, how do you not ignore what's happening around in the space? And it seems attractive you know, and exciting. <laughs> of course, I'd be a liar to say that you're not looking on into the industry. You know, we, we were always an orphan, you know. No no one <laughs> no one would have us in that part of the industry you know, frozen vegetables didn't want us. Categorization has always been really difficult for us and uh, no more when, you know, these companies are getting billions in market cap for for what we just couldn't understand. Um, not from a scientific perspective. We understood the makeup of the products and ultimately the the, the interest in the market. But one of the things that we learned really early on is that simplicity is key and we were never plant-based we were always plants and we took part in the plant-based conversation because that was a industry understood categorization that made us part of something as opposed to nothing because we didn't want to be you know green giant and bird's eye but we also didn't want to be beyond an impossible either you know we were very, very specifically, as you've rightly said, trying to be a delivery method for vegetables. Mm-hmm. And the consumer got that and the consumer understood it and the consumer didn't need any education about it. And as a marketer, I always think that when you have to do an education job for the consumer against your industry or your products, you've already got an uphill battle. Not because of the potential of naysayers, which will come with success anyway, um, but more to do with the fact that if the consumer doesn't understand it, then there's capacity for them to question what it is, why you're doing it, etc. And ultimately, long term, that's you know quite difficult. And mm-hmm. you can see that in other industries like the beverage industry against sugar or the meat industry against... Um, uh, you know, the carcinogenic properties against pork, for example, or, you know, anything where there's there's um, education still to be had about the constituent parts of that, you know, at some stage you're going to have, have questions that get more and more difficult. And when it comes to vegetables and plants, there's no education needed. People innately feel they're good, they feel they're good for them, 
There's questions over conventional versus organic, which is a debate that's been going on for years. But ultimately, you know, that forms a, a small part of um, frozen globally versus mm-hmm. frozen in the US. And and when you've got something that, you know, if you pitch it right and you've got the right format and you hit the right trend in terms of the ingredient profile, of which we always lead with one or two and not more, it's either something that people want tastes good and they want to buy again or not and customer loyalty and consumer loyalty metrics is one of the most valuable things that any brand can look at and some people think it's incredibly uh, complicated to go and find those but if you go into the same store every day for a month you will see if the, if the customer is picking it up or not um if they pick it up again and again, you're going to see consistent sales. and You're going to see that you have something, even if it's in the worst position in the store. As long as the shelf is stocked, you're going to get some impulse purchase if you've got the communication of the packaging right and the product right. And then it becomes about whether they buy it again. And my biggest concern for the imitation meat or, or alternative protein industry from the very beginning has been... Um, it's 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 effort in being so close to meat and animal protein is is going to lead people back to um, the, the the product that they that they have the positive sentiment and experience for. So instead of trying to push against making people change their behavior out of fear, I've always felt it's better to try and give them more options so that they can do it less often as opposed to having to revert to, um, you know, regular behavior of eating hamburgers or steak or whatever, you know, every day of the week. If the other options are just as good as better in different occasion, then people can just eat less. Um, so if they eat more vegetables, they'll eat less of something else. And for me, the, the, the kind of, forced you know shaming tactics of various different marketing programs to get people to not do something long term are always going to lose out against getting people to do something positive um um so yeah like so many times we develop products with pea protein and sunflower protein and you know various different things that would bring us to a different echelon of both price mm-hmm. and proposition and by the way, we're still doing it. Um, I think there's a, a whole element of alternative protein 3.0 that we're working on at the moment, um, where we, we're leaning into uh, mycelium mm-hmm. mycoprotein as the source with other plants, like um, the vegetables that we sell. And we're working on a proposition currently that, that presents it just like that. You know, you can have both. You don't have to make it like meat when people just want to eat plants and vegetables. Um, so um, the answer, in short, is absolutely yes. It's 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 difficult when you're part of an industry not to be looking at what's going on and going. You know, have we got it? Have we got it massively wrong here, or have we missed a moment, or is this a momentary? Um, choice where we need to stay true to our beliefs and not try and pivot into something that not even the market understands yet and you know yeah. that goes for investors partners 
employees, you know, everyone's like, why aren't we doing a burger? Why are we doing a burger that looks like this? You know, we've got the beats. Let's make it bleed. You know, it's, it's difficult to stand your ground, but also we're, we've always been a brand that's kind of grown, I'd say organic plus, which is funded in a sustainable way and not hyper funded to, to stratospheric levels. And you can never have, you can never win share of voice with that type of model. You have mm. to win share of heart. So we've always focused on, you know, the few but intense fans as opposed to um, trying to buy everybody in a two-year period, which mm. I think in the U.S. Is, is, a, is a strategy that's worked time and time again with different brands. But when you're trying to build a global brand, you know, the budget would have to be considerable to do something mm. like that. And and the scale up at that speed, you know, is not my experience. So, yeah. you know, we're growing sustainably fast, not hyper unicorn fast, um, because that's that's what we know. Yeah. I mean, it's arguably one could even say that, you know, it's too early to know the entire story, even because it's being written right now. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've only, even in the last, I would say, six years, we've seen so many shifts in the space where um and and there's it would probably take a few years to unpack what truly happened and the impact all these different uh innovations and moves and trends have have had on not just consumer behavior and eating habits but also on potential future trends and innovation in the space for example one could probably argue that all the hype around meat alternatives in the last few years um you know, well warranted. There was reason to be excited. There were some exciting new products out in the market that were doing things and tasting and promising uh, an, a sensory experience that was never delivered before with plants as the core ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. One could say that that trend and the consumer interest in plant based eating also probably contributed to your growth. Um, there's no easy of way course. to really draw that correlation, but I've, it is undoubtedly clear that the entire category of plants which is why we're now seeing plant-based slapped on literally every little thing any product in the grocery yeah. store now um, yeah. because it's got a halo of, of of goodness along with it but i'm pretty sure you cap you benefited from it as well and now in a strange way if you wait long enough whatever you're doing and if you're doing it well enough it becomes trendy because in the last two years i'm noticing sort of a counter trend where i'm seeing companies and again this is myopic in my view from a marketing standpoint because it is pitting yourself versus something else that already has people's attention and saying you are not that versus actually talking about what you are and i'm seeing this trend of companies talking about how they are not very processed or they do not include x number of ingredients in their products and they are made with real vegetables i I don't have an answer i don't i don't even know if i understand truly what's going on at this stage (laughs) I've heard it described as the whole plant movement, which mm-hmm. is focus on real unprocessed food as opposed to, you know, what what I and a lot of other founders in that space feel that has happened is, is that we've, while the intentions of the big brands um, that have been successful in the in the alternative protein space have done something really unique beneficial to the environment and society, et cetera. What they've also done is opened up the, the, the floodgates for 
copycat inferior versions relying on um, overuse of crops and land and everything that goes with it. So if you're doing it consciously, um, like all of those companies at the top of the tree are doing with those big valuations that you mentioned, that's great. But what happens is, is that you're also creating a market for, um, you know, the wrong type of food production to happen. And I mm-hmm. think you you can't, I suppose, we can't have this conversation and not look at where the money market moves towards in this scenario as well. You know, I I was asked to mentor, have a, have a phone call with a company that has raised over $500 million, uh, having done $2 million in sales in one year uh, with no intellectual property. Mm. Now, what that says to me is, you know, you know, <laughs> and having delved into it and understand, understanding that there's no kind of, you know, secret sell or, or, or unique selling proposition on top of that, just kind of layering into the plant-based opportunity that, that, that exists for all of us. There's an issue in that the market has such low interest rates that uh, people and organizations and high net worths are trying to put their money into anything that has half of a chance, mm-hmm. which is also inflating this, the potential success of the market versus showing a true reality of the fact that a very, very small numbers of companies are actually succeeding and everything's been, been stacked up by um, material capital as opposed to actual um, uh, increases in the sector. So... Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things similar to what you said about, you know, and absolutely, of course, the wave of plant-based consumption has helped us to no end because we were able to categorize ourselves as something, but we were also able to take part um, in in uh, countries and industries that we never would have got access to as quickly. Yeah. But then, you know, there is the unfortunate side of what's not working that doesn't get talked about. Um and uh, and I think there's a lot of that going on at the moment while people try and find a place for themselves in, in the industry. But I'm, I'm sure you as well as many of these, um, these uh, the food tech startups, for lack of a better term, let's call them that, you're mm-hmm. both banking on a growing market for, for the, whatever products you're selling, right? So I think that's the interesting part here is... Because often today, and in, in when you read the press and some of the mostly negative press coming out lately about, you know, many of the meat alternative companies, I see speculation about whether the whether there isn't really that big a market for these products. And maybe they're specifically talking about those products. And I think we there's no easy way to know this for sure at this stage. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you're you're seeing the trends. I mean, let's talk about your expansion into the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is a huge yeah. market. You want to be a global company. You want to be able to play here. But I'm sure there was a lot more to it than that. You definitely see there's a trend towards people um, who are not vegan or vegetarian that are choosing to consume less meat, choosing to eat more healthy. And my guess is, and this is a speculation based on your products and everything I've heard, is that's the market you're going after. You're going after the... and, And in some cases, even the meat alternative or food tech companies are also going after that same market with a very different kind of product and a very different yeah. message or brand around it. Kind of. So actually where a brand like Strong Roots thrives is in the 
incremental category growth that can come from within. So remember, frozen is an anomaly in the store in that you can't add more frozen space. So the frozen space that's there now is likely the same frozen space that was there five or 10 years ago. It's a fixed shelf that needs refrigeration to operate. And I can tell you now that unless it's a new store opening, of which there have been very little in the last five years, um, that space has just been rotated, not increased. Mm -hmm. So for us, the, the secret to Strong Roots is we, we, we figure out by data that if we were to swap out versus X, Y, or Z brand or private label product, that we would deliver incremental value to the category. So actually, instead of, I mean, of course, we want a market that's seeing incremental plant-based growth and frozen growth at the same time. But actually, our sweet spot is where we feel that we can improve a, uh, a stale market or a stale retailer for something that they need to, to solve. And a lot of the times we approach product development with that type of uh, innovation and, and, and R&D um, goals, which is with all of these jigsaw pieces in the place, how can we remove one and improve both the, the velocity and the, and the value at the same time? So ours is less, um, not absent of, of needing category growth, that'd be a silly thing to say, but we're focused on how to improve the consumption habits of the consumers that are coming to the section mm -hmm. and also bring more people to the category where they're normally going to fresh produce or chilled or snacking or another part of the store. So because of the emergence is frozen as a positive, a more positive place to be in the last number of years. There's so much runway to get those people back to frozen in, in, in its entirety. So even, you know, in a lot of categories and a lot of retailers, we can clearly see that um, the sections and categories are down. And that's actually where we thrive. I've had a number of conversations with retailers in the US in the last few weeks where I've been illustrating to them that in their specific category, they have um, inflation in their sections at the moment because of um, volume or value uplifts because of cost price increases, but their units are down. Whereas our products in all markets, specifically or particularly in the US uh, for this conversation, are both up in value and volume. And for me, that's an illustration of regardless of CPIs or whatever, we're still in growth. And that's where we do well. It's identifying not just the gap from an innovation perspective, mm -hmm. but the gap in range, the gap in opportunity for, you know, cash in the, in the till, you know, um, which is ultimately the, the job of the retailer. I mean, I, I think you've just revealed a big um, key. I was going to ask this question, but you've given me one of the keys of of uh, your growth which is you truly understand the retail space which one would assume is um is a given for anyone who's in this industry starting a company and running it but you'd be surprised as the uh, the number of uh, startup founders i've actually talked to in the last few years who are so hyper focused on innovation they don't think about what happens once they have a product <laughs> And they maybe leave it up to someone else to figure it out at that point in time. And that's just, frankly, shocking. I, 
a mentor a lot of early stage founders and that is the first thing that I ask them you know <laughs> did you ask a retailer whether they want this product or not because <laughs> the consumer might want it but the retailer might be the wrong delivery method for it because it competes with them on something else and mm -hmm. you know back to that anecdote that I gave you about Green Giant and how it didn't work that's the moment I realized that if you're going to lean into the bricks and mortar channel, you have to understand everything that they're going through at the same time as you're trying to sell them something. Because I think their biggest gripe would be um, they don't know what, what our business is. They just want to selfishly put our product on the shelf and they don't understand what the repercussions of that are. So, you know, I've never had a buyer meeting where I didn't have most of the conversation about the fact that I was trying to solve a problem for them, yep. which ultimately would help them with the consumer. And if you understand that, you'll get there so much faster for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, you have to, as, as annoying as it is, because it is frustrating sometimes because you might think you've got the next best thing since sliced bread, but now you've got to talk to a buyer in a category who doesn't understand you or your product. But, but, you know, if you want to change the system, yeah, you can go D to C. You can probably do that. Maybe, maybe there's hope there. But if you truly want to have the level of impact many companies in the space want to, you have to understand the system and the sort of the the ways to navigate through it. Um, and the only way to do that is to create win-win scenarios. Give the buyer what you think they want and what that store needs, um, and find a middle ground that works for both. Um, I do want to talk about how your experience in the U.S. has been so far. Uh, obviously, um, I'm guessing it was a giant leap to to decide to um, bet on the U.S. market, or maybe not. Maybe you you've been preparing for this since the start of Strong Roots. Tell me how that's gone so far. I know also you, to throw a wrench in the middle of all of this. I think you timed your expansion to the U.S. around when the pandemic hit, or right after, or before. Um, so yeah, any, what have you learned in the last couple of years since you've, or oh, three years now since you've been on this journey in the U S um, I'm delighted I'm here because, um, seeing and living is believing how different the U S market is to any other market that, um, we, we play in, um, it's 50 countries not one country in complexity and scale and um, complexity um, in that there's, you know, as many demographics and buying behaviors and store groups and nuances to purchasing in all of those different states. And it also is a... Um, a continent, not a country, where the realization comes after you start about um, how much funding it requires, how much cash you need to burn. It is the, you know, one of the greatest economies in the world, but there is a lot of middlemen and women that need to be paid to get there. And it's a system that works when you play the game. And I think like a lot of European companies, you come thinking that you can improve the system. And actually, once you realize that that's not your job 
and <laughs> you need to conform in a certain sense. You can be innovative, but you still need to conform in general. Um, you get there much quicker. So it's been it's been a it's been an eye opening experience, and I think as an entrepreneur, I'm so much the better for it having been here because I think a lot of you know, initially when I came over here, there was a lot of focus on the fact that our HQ is in Ireland. I'm here, this disjointedness from the, the, the management and operating team. You know, there's a bit of, um, I suppose, loss of communication, the fact that I'm not there 100% of the time, but also it's on a different time zone. So, mm-hmm. you know, speaking from a, a European transplanted brand, I'd say, you know, you know, key leadership need to be here to, to understand how to do it. And then, you know, it's about understanding how things happen at scale. So, you know, you can't just hire a field marketing team to go to every store across a weekend. You know, it, it might take a year for that to, to materialize, depending on what your distribution is. Um, um, but when you get products that work, um, you know, considering we launched a range of six items, we've got two key SKUs that do 90% of the business. Um, you have to be realistic about how you support those SKUs versus range. You have to understand what channels they're suitable for. Um, and also understand that it's always a multi-channel approach here. Mm-hmm. Of course, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If you're, you know, if you're comfortable with organic growth, and you want to stay in a local market and become super famous for a super high-end product that you do from a very particular part of the country, servicing a very particular part of the country, you know, you can make a lot of profit that way. If you want to be a national brand or an international brand, which were, were our objectives, you know, it takes time, it takes capital, a lot of patience, um, failing fast and recovering very, very quickly because the ecosystem for entrepreneurship here in startup brands is like no other. You know, Mm -hmm. if you have a good idea on a Monday, you've got five competitors on a Friday. And that is the difference between, you know, the U S market and a lot of other markets, because not only is there, it's the, it's the continent of great ideas, but it's also the continent of venture capital where things can move fast. So um, if you know the most and, you've figured out to have a USP over everyone else for, you know, an extended amount of time with supply chain, with IP, whatever, you know, you can, you can last the distance, but it's certainly not for the faint hearted, the U S market or the food industry, but the U S market (laughs) in particular. Um, So it's been a, it's been a training ground of sorts, which Mm -hmm. we're starting to make progress in, but tough nonetheless. Yeah. I'm, before I want to let's talk actually let's talk about McCain. I know you've um, you met you alluded to the partnership with McCain. I know you got some investment from them. They're a yeah. minority shareholder in Strong Roots. St- strategically, um, how does that impact your next steps? Besides, obviously, the capital infusion. Obviously, this is a very strategic partnership here. How did that yeah. fit into your your bigger goals? Um, and what has come yeah. off it so far? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was way more than capital. You know, we we saw in them and they in us what each other didn't have, which was you know for them a premium plant based proposition that they could help globalize, and for us it was a robust 
global supply chain of manufacturing and movement of goods um, and building one or the other from scratch is very difficult in a market like this um, or or globally, you know, near impossible in a, in a relatively short space of time without other customers and clients, etc. So, um, you know, it's kind of easy to say we were the perfect match at the perfect time. You know, they they are on a sustainability journey, which we wanted to plug into. And we are on a globalization journey, which we wanted to plug into them. So if you think about, you know, the types of products that they have versus the products that they'd like to um, partner with us on for distribution and food service and retail, et cetera, in the future, you know, they saw the benefit of being a partner without necessarily, you know, owning the partnership. And it was important for us that it was a minority partnership in that we have a very particular path and goal set and way of doing things that we want to execute. And they understand that right from the beginning, you know, from the first conversation. Um, I had illustrated to them that we wanted to try and achieve uh, the type of relationship that Unilever and Ben and Jerry's had, which was do things their way with using all the best tools in the box whenever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the shortest conversation. <laughs> it was just kind of <laughs> like, yep, yeah, we're kind of on the same page here. Um, so, yeah, it's much more than money. You know, markets at that time weren't as wound down as they are now, um, but there were options. Um, I think having had a private equity partner previously, we understood that we needed someone who knew the industry, who knew the the difficulties that, you know, a downward turn in the market would take, who understood yeah. inflation and ingredients and supply and all of those things. So, um, yeah, having a, having a partner in the know has been really, really, important especially this year and what we're looking into um you know while we're still growing we want to grow much faster so having a partner that can actually help us mobilize that was key so um yeah it's been you know it's a it's just less than a year now nearly a year um next week and um it's been a a really really good positive fast moving uh, experience so far and everything that was prescribed so no buyer's remorse for them or or investor <laughs> remorse for me uh, it's good, all good, very good timing too with uh with that deal i'm sure um yeah we're given, very or maybe you knew or maybe you had a sense <laughs> yeah. of where things were headed no didn't know that trend for sure <laughs> <laughs> a lot of our my listeners are majority of them are based in the u.s um, several may have um, already tried some of your products. I'd love to talk a little bit about your current available SKUs in the U.S. and uh, where consumers can find it um, yep. and what, what, what new things might be coming in the pipeline soon. Yes, great. I love talking about our food. Uh, this is the, the best subject. So we our most widely available SKUs are our famous cauliflower hash browns and our mixed root vegetable fries that I spoke about earlier. Um, Cauliflower hash browns are a super simple five ingredient product. Um, Some cauliflower is potato, potato starch, um, salt and pepper to taste. And 
have kind of captured the taste buds of uh, a lot of uh, Americans at this stage. I think we've got, you know, household penetration of, you know, just over 1% with that product, which for a relatively young brand is, is pretty good going in, in, a, in a short space of time. But um, it's a, you know, what we set out to do with that product was um, take a McDonald's hash brown and make it healthy and tasty <laughs> um, <laughs> as much as as much as could be. I know it seems like a very casual brief, but that is literally what we sat down at the table to do. Um, and uh, the consumer has has proved us right. Um, um, you can get that product in most major retailers now. So Walmart, Whole Foods, Kroger, um, ShopRite, you know, most of the places on the East Coast, Wegmans, Sprouts, Fresh Market, um, you know, a, a whole range of, of places, both big and small, either through UNFI or, or direct into the big guys. Uh, same with our mixed veggie fries and they're just, you know, a delicious, crisp, naturally sweet from the sugars of the root vegetables, crisp alternative to, to French fries that we see a lot of the time as, a, you know, a, a home chef's balancing act on the top of something else, making it look colorful and visibly delicious, you know. Um, both super simple products, like minimal ingredients, low in everything that you want, high in everything that you want and free from, you know, all the bad stuff. And, um, you know, those two products have been our, our marquee SKUs in the US. We used to um, sell the range of spinach bites, which I, I mentioned earlier on is um, a really interesting product. It's a snacking product that sits currently a meat alternative, but moving into the kind of entree section of appetizers and snacking. It's creamy spinach inside uh, upcycled dehydrated vegetable flakes. So instead of breading like wheat or whatever, we've made beets and carrots into crumbs, which um, give a really interesting crunchy taste and texture to the to the creamy spinach. So if you want an alternative to a, a cheese stick or, or a mozzarella stick or something like that, it's a really healthy, you know, high fiber, high iron uh, product, um, which tastes delicious. Um, We've just launched sweet potato fries into the US and we're hoping that can become the number one branded SKU too. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find those in uh, uh, Fresh Market and Sprouts um, and ShopRite coming soon as well. And then uh, we've just launched an um, entrees platform that we're calling Meals for One, which is the first ever completely clean, high-protein natural plant-based ready meal for the US. Um, and every time we go into a retailer and talk about it, they're like, yeah, but how does it differ to everything else that we've got on the shelf? And we're like, oh, it's, it, it's completely healthy. And they're like, yeah, but all those things are healthy. And I was like, yeah, read the ingredients. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the entree meal aisle looking at why this was such a massive part of Frozen in the US and trying to understand why no one had done, you know, clean, healthy versions of what's mm-hmm. there. And instead of using non-natural proteins like legumes and pulses, why we couldn't leverage that. So our first two SKUs go live in Whole Foods in January, which are our uh, Thai green veg curry and our um, Greek orzo pasta bake. 
um, super low calorie, super high in protein, fiber, low salt, you know, all the things that you want there, but actually no uh, unnatural ingredients. Um, and this is nationwide um, in Whole Foods? Yes, uh, nationwide in Whole Foods from uh, January and um, coming to a few other chains after that mm. from March forward. If you can't wait for that, you can go to shop.strongroots.com and order them through our first ever D2Z channel offering uh, where those two SKUs make up a subscription box. Um, so, um, yeah, we're super excited about those and and also launching into into the digital platform as well. So, um, I Is that a first for you? Have you done that before in Europe or this is the first time? First for us, it's in wow. beta right now. So um, let's say that this is an exclusive to your podcast and your <laughs> listeners can actually um, trial it uh, for very low cost at the moment. I'm not sure if it's free or nearly free, but we'd love some feedback. So if you put that out there and we'll leave it on until we have to stop. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, we love doing bench testing with the products. The DTC yeah. channel has been good for that. That's exciting. That's really exciting. And uh, you don't do any food service SKUs at the moment, do you? Um, we have one customer in Ireland from the very beginning, a five-star hotel who still sells our sweet potato fries, believe it or not, as an appetizer. But no, other than that, um, we're actually launching um, our uh, a range of our products through McCain's Out of Home Network in september in the uk and hopefully we'll follow into the us um the year afterwards so we're currently developing a full food service offering um for qsr and um uh, food service chains so watch this space it's it's uh it's coming soon wow that's quite a journey you've been on and um very interested to see how some of your new SKUs in the US uh, start to perform. I mean, that's an exciting category to be getting into given, yes, there's not many healthy options. Then if there are some that call themselves healthy, they don't probably, they don't taste great. So what's the point? And that, that, that's what every retail buyer has told us until they've tried them. So that's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a great call out. Great. Um, well, you know, you've been at this now for, for pretty much most of your life. I mean, if you include the time uh, that you spent with your family getting started with your family business, which you probably learned all the nuts and bolts of everything that went into eventually creating Strong Roots. Um, I know in looking back at some of your early reasons, and you, you talked about it a bit today also, you were very keen on building a brand, um, and that's been a big focus for you, taking everything that's great about vegetables and the business that you had learned growing up, but then applying that to create innovative new products without losing the integrity of the whole vegetables. And, you know, it's, it's almost like you've, you've stumbled into, or maybe this is all planned and you saw it 10 years ago and you knew the world was heading in this direction. There are so many reasons why that's the direction we need to be taking our food system. It has to be more plant forward. Um, it has to be more nutrient dense. It also has to be more sustainable. So just plan forward without the sustainability piece. If you're just, uh, relying on, you know, if you're not diversifying your crops, you're not really truly doing great from a sustainability standpoint, although you're much better compared to anything that's animal-based. Um, all that to say, you're definitely 
on trend. And of course, if the products are great and people love how they taste, uh, there's nothing but good things ahead for Strong Roots as a company. Where do you see all this going? I know your company has a big uh, focus on sustainability as much as it does on its core ingredients and the brand. Um, we didn't really talk about the impact on the environment much today. And and maybe it's a good place to close out our conversation. Um, and I usually give the year 2050 because, you know, for most estimates, if by then we haven't course corrected and done things now that hopefully are going to change the trajectory we're headed in, by the year 2050, we're most likely going to be in a terrible place on multiple fronts, whether it is impact on land, food shortages, the impact on, on climate. But we still have a fighting chance, at least um, most of us who focus on food and the future of food believe that, that we have a fighting chance in the decisions and the actions we take today, both as people in the food industry as well as as consumers, can play a big difference in where this future is. So let's just talk about the best case scenario. What's your vision of what the food system will look like in 2050 if we get it right? Um, you know, and, we're, and that I used to give this timeline back in 2017. It's already 2022. The, the years are closing in now. Um, yeah. But yeah, what do you think in 2050? What will the food system look like? What will our diets predominantly um, consist of? There's no right or wrong answers. It's whatever you can dream of. Well, I think importantly, I feel that um, newer food companies have a role to play in the leadership of what 2050 could look like. And, you know, our role in Strong Roots is to illustrate a best case scenario for the rest of the food system. So I know today that our consumption of carbon is, our production of carbon is uh, 908 tonnes uh, per annum. And therefore, you know, through insetting and further reduction within the next few months, we can claim carbon uh, neutrality if we want it. Um, we're conscious of a lot of the negative effects of greenwashing. So, you know, our effort has to be in constant improvement, regardless of the fact that we can claim these accolades, which a lot of people think is the end goal, not the start of how we start improving things. Because remember, we have to limit the rising temperature and counteract the effects of others who will never be able to get there by doing other things, by like sequestering carbon, by further planting of um, crops in the right way or um, the various other different efforts that are being made. So... For us, it's about illustrating what the best case scenario could be and showing a leadership role to bigger companies in order to do better. And the reality is, is that they have the power, the profit, and the ability to do those things today. They're choosing not to. So um, the illustration should be by example. And um, I think the best case scenario is we still have a lot of problems that have to be solved, but it eliminates the potential eradic eradication of our species on, on the planet because of the rising temperatures over um, a long period of time. So uh, for me, with children, it's worth the effort, even if the book is already written. And therefore, 
it's easy in a company like Strong Roots to share that example and do better for the sake of it. Um, and that's what uh, that's what we share as a group of people that are trying to do this together and a community of B Corps and a community of plant-based foods uh, around the world. Like, um, I think we're in good company on this podcast and with our peers, but ultimately we're the minority, not the majority. So, you know, um, making sure that we create a non-judgmental education platform for people to understand slight improvements daily, you know, be it reducitarian or flexitarian or whatever it might be. Um, I think um, it's about a united efforted approach leading by example, as opposed to kind of forcing it down people's necks mm -hmm. and also um, educating, you know, further generations to do so, which fortunately seems to be the case in terms of the, the, the consciousness they have for, for the problems. So what it looks like, I don't know, but I'm going to keep the head down and try and make it the best outcome possible. Yeah. One, one buyer at each, at one retailer at a time, right? Start there. So yeah, either consciously or sub or subconsciously, you know, if we can, if we can, if we could get them to make the right choices without having to think about it, isn't that better than uh, than anything? Of course. Well, Sam Danigan, this has been uh, an absolute pr pleasure. Congratulations on all your growth, um, and uh, excited to see what happens next. I mean, it seems like you're, you're, you know, you've been around for a few years, but there's so much more to do in this space. Uh, it's very early innings right now, so. I appreciate you coming on today and I uh, look forward to following your journey in the months and years ahead. Likewise, great to chat. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.